Um, also, I, I do want to commend you um, or applaud you for bearing with me with this tedious treatment of a topic that I think is um, somewhat short shrifted in the evangelical world, the, the, uh, the fear of God. We're just about finished um, tonight and then next week and we'll be done with this whole thing of the fear of God. So um, <clears throat> next week we'll close with the incentives, the incentives to fear God or maybe the promises um, that are granted to the God-fearer. But tonight we're going to look at something a little bit, well, a lot different. Um, what does the God-fearer look like? If I am a God-fearer, what kinds of things would most likely be true? And I'm, you know, I've got four or five here, maybe six, but, and I'm sure there's dozens of others. But um, if I'm a God-fearer, what, what kinds of things would most probably and most likely be true of me? I want to start with um, the subject of worship. And, and, and guys, I'm sorry to ask you to do this, but the Bible is so full of statements concerning um, the fear of God that we just have to bounce around and just see these rich, rich statements that are afforded us. We'll start in, um, and here's what I'm going to do. I have four that I want to read rather hurriedly, and then I want to ask you to say, and then I want to just have you pause and think, now what's the overall impact that those four uh, statements made on me? Well, how can I summarize those four statements? Here's the first one. This is in nine, um, uh, Psalm 96.4. Um, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Okay? That's the first one. The second one is just a couple of Psalms back. Um, Psalm 89, uh, verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. And then there's one uh, in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Um, oh, 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 let me read. No, I can't. And they sang the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, listen to this, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then one final little one in, in um, Psalm 5. Um, and we'll chat. Uh, Psalm 5, verse uh, 7. Um, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Now, gang, those were four statements, all four statements having to do with a worshiper. Someone doing something that is in the realm or uh, world of worship. Okay, how did it strike you? What is in the, the, the mind of the worshiper who said all four of these? And by the way, they're different people. 
um, you know, John in Revelation, Ethan in uh, uh, Psalm 96, David in Psalm 89, and David in Psalm 5. So three different people, three different occasions, three different events of worship. And they all say things that I think has a strain to it. What is it? What did you hear? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Um, His excellencies are known to all the earth. Here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. In terms of the worship of the God-fearer, he has a great big God. You know, gang, um, I'm not trying to be sectarian here, um, but in in Arminian circles, I don't see much being said about the fear of God. And here's why, I think, my own analysis. In Arminianism, when man is big and God is small, then you're not going to have much discussion about fearing God. What you're going to hear about is, uh, I, I was talking to a young man the other day, and he went to a, a, a um, rock concert called a worship event. Um, and, and he said, you know, the, um, the, 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 the singer was, um, was quite talented and skilled, and his band was good, and the music. He said, but he told several stories. And then he added this. And yet, in every story, he was, the, he was the hero of every story. He, the singer. Now, gang, if you've got a low view of God, then that's what you're going to hear a lot. You're going to hear about how, you know, in, in some of these, these rock concerts that are called worship services, I don't know what they would do without the word hallelujah. Very honestly, it's a great word. But I mean, they, they fall into these trances and they sing, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know, and I think, wait a minute. What is going on here? I don't know. I, I can't say for sure. But I'm telling you, when I read the Psalms and the book of Revelation, what do I see? I see a worshiper that is struck. By the largeness and the bigness. And even they use the word awesome, which has been ruined by the 21st century. But the word awesome. A God-fearer has a big God. Not a small one. He's struck by the bigness of God. And And he finds himself oftentimes at a loss of words. He can only say, great, because I don't have a bigger word. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And and I I, I hope you notice that in all four of those texts that I read you, they all mention, I will enter in the fear of the Lord. What What has produced that? This big God. So the God-fearer, in terms of his worship, is struck by how big is our God. 
Um, here's a second feature or second trait, I guess you would say, of, of a God-fearer. Um, this mention, this, this, where I want to start is in the New Testament in Acts chapter 9, and it's, a, it's descriptive of the early church. And, and let me read you what it says about the early church. In, in Acts chapter 9, verse uh, 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee, by the way, and Samaria, and we're, we're maybe talking to dozens of churches, scores of churches, there all the, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Listen. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know, guys, one of the words that the Puritans would use a great deal is the word careful. Um, not careful in being risk adverse. That's not what they meant. It was, they were careful is that they, <clears throat> when it came to their souls, they were full of care. There was a great deal of attention that was given to the, to the maintenance of their souls. You know that statement in Proverbs 4 talking about um, vigilance over your heart because out of it flows the issues of life. There was a vigilance. There was a vigilance over the soul. And, and interestingly, and walking in the fear of the Lord. Well, what does that walking include? Well, I think you know, I've done this a couple of times, but you know, um, the New Testament in particular talks about the Christian life as a walk. <clears throat> a walk of faith. And they're walking, you know, the right foot and the left foot and the right, left, right, left, right, left. And just in the, 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 the living out of their, of their relationship with God through faith in Christ. And how are they doing it? Well, they were careful. They manifested much care, much vigilance over their souls. You know that statement in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, um, um, be on your guard and make sure that no root of bitterness spring up among you by which many will be defiled. You know that text? Did you hear it? Be on guard so that no root, not a big one, not a little, not a small one, not a medium one, no root of bitterness be allowed. How do you do that? Well, you're careful. One of the things that the fear of God produces is care over the soul. And, and you know, guys, what I see in so many instances is a neglect of the soul. Not a care over it. God fearers exercise care over their souls. They are careful. <clears throat> you know, gang, and, and, I, and I don't make light of this because pain is pain. And I think we can all agree we want less of it. But I watch Christians who have these eruptions of pain that occur. And I'm telling you, 
99 times out of 100, those eruptions of pain come after the soul has been neglected for months, years. God-fearers take care over their soul. They're vigilant over their heart. Here's an interesting one, a a characteristic that I found that I think is um, consistent with the fear of God. I I think I've read this one to you before. Um, This is about Nehemiah. You know, he comes back and he's the governor. We we don't have time to talk about it all, but um, um, I mean, he is he is really upset with what he finds. (coughs) Pardon me. But in um, um, verse 15 of chapter 5, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. It says right there in the text. What led him to an act of self-denial? It was his fear of God. Gang, he comes, when he shows up, he says, um, the things that you are doing, no, the things that you are doing is not, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? And then when I found out what they were doing in terms of taxation, I eliminated that taxation. I had a right to it. I was the governor of the place, but I didn't do it. Why? Because he walked in the fear of God. Those acts of self-denial are a characteristic, or let me just put it this way, self-denial is a characteristic of God-fearers. Here's, I mean, gang, I'm, I'm only going through the Bible picking out things that that are associated with the fear of God. I mean, we, we, could, we could make a vast list of what it means to be a, live a holy life, but these are just ones that are associated with the fear of God. That's, that's why I'm, those are, these are selected. Here's an interesting one, and, and maybe a surprise to, to some. Um, it's in Colossians chapter 3, um, and Paul says to these Christians who are at Colossae, he says this, <clears throat> um, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Do you know what one of the characteristics of God-fearers are? They're good employees. Hire God-fearers. Because they don't serve you. They do their work as unto the Lord. How could anybody who's serving a church give less than their best? Well, I'll tell you how. They don't fear God. It says here, this is not addressed to Church employees, this isn't just anybody. 
Don't do this out of eye service, you know, so people will, you know, he's really good. Or people pleasing, which is the motive for so much of what we do elsewhere. But do this as for the Lord and not for men, fearing the Lord. So one of the characteristics of God fears is that they make good employees. Hire them. Find the God fearer, hire them. And um, you'd be glad you did. Uh, here's another one. Gang, there's a, there's a long story that we don't have time to tell. I, I love to tell stories, as you know, but this is a long story about Ahab and Jezebel. I think you know Elijah had this big battle with the prophets of um, Baal. Um, and, you know, it's a, just a wonderful scene. It's a wonderful passage to, to preach. And when we go to Israel, we always go to this place where this, uh, supposedly at the top of Mount Carmel, where you see that, the, the, the spot where um, uh, Elijah battled. But, um, you know, the drought is bad, and, you know, uh, Elijah's been in hiding, and so um, Ahab, the king, comes to his chief religious officer, a prophet by the name of Obadiah. And he says, listen, we, we got to save the donkeys and the cattle, so we got to find some grass someplace. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the right, and I'm going to go to the left, and we got to look for this Elijah guy because we got to get this drought taken care of. We got we to get him to, uh, you know, stop this, uh, this drought. Um, now, this is how chapter 18, right before Carmel, uh, starts. Um, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will reign upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. He's the religious guy over at Ahab's household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Why? Why did Obadiah risk his life? Why did he make that kind of brave and courageous decision? Well, the text tells you. Because he feared the Lord greatly. You know, I'm sure he was scared of Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, she was uh, not anybody he wanted to tangle with. But his fear of God was bigger than that. And so he took 100 prophets where they were supposed to all be dead because of Jezebel. He took 100 prophets and hit them 50 by 50 in two different caves and then fed them bread and water. That's pretty difficult, feeding 100 people three times or once a day in secret. Where's he getting that food? And, and what prompted him? Well, let me read it to you again. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So what causes people to take risks? In the interest of the expansion of the kingdom. The fear of the Lord. So they worship a real big God. They're very careful over their souls. They, they, they um, are, are willing to deny self. They're good workers. They're courageous. They, they do acts of bravery because... They fear God. And here's a, here's a, here's a good one, y'all. You know the story of Genesis 22, when Abraham, when God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to go sacrifice your son Isaac, you know, the, the, the only child he's got. And, um, you know, he's already run Ishmael off. And Isaac is left, and, 
and I want you to go sacrifice him. And so he gets up early in the morning and he goes and he, you know, takes him over there and he's about to kill him. And, and, uh, the angel steps forward, the angel of the Lord, um, steps forward and says, uh, that's enough. Listen to this. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for a now I know that you love me. Your Bible doesn't say that, ladies and gentlemen. It says, don't do anything to him, for now I know that you fear me. Not love me. Fear me. This act of great sacrifice. Call it, call it some kind of heroic obedience. I, I don't know. But what prompted Abraham to go do that? He feared God. I've got two more, and um, I've got to hurry. Um, guys, here's a, I guess this is number seven. Um, I don't know. Folks, um, I may be speaking only of myself, but I don't think I am. By nature, we are all high-minded folk. Um, and so, um, God steps in to us little, to us little uh, high-minded twits. And um, here's his strategy. His strategy is that he gives us a thorn. He puts a thorn in our flesh. He gives us something that's a problem, something that's a malady, something that's a need, something that's a deficit with the intent of that thing keeping us from becoming more high-minded than we already are. Now listen to this statement that he makes about Paul. This is familiar. You've heard of this. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Okay, that is God's methodology. That's one of the things that he does. You got a problem? Good. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we all ought to pray for one unmet need. But God does something like, you know, a detached retina. He does something. Oh, he pushes you down some stairs and you bust your elbow. Because to keep you from going further in this fleshly pursuit of your own high-mindedness, I'm going to give you a thorn. I'm going to remind you of the great need that, there, that you have to walk before me in humility. Now listen to this. This is out of Romans chapter 11. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So, do not become proud, but fear. So do you see what those two things that are juxtaposed there? I don't want you to be proud. I want you to fear. So what does God do? He gives us issues such that our flesh will not run wild. So gang, the thing that God desires from his people 
and from God-fearers? And something that ought to be a trait of all of us? It's humility. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, and I bet you I'm not the only one in the room that can say this. Don't mess with this God. Hopefully, we can learn by faith instead of by detached retinas that we are to walk in humility. That's another characteristic. That's what God fears look like. And here's my last one. And, and I have to tell you that I really, I got most of this from John Piper. I read something that he wrote just recently. And, and he was drawing it out of Psalm 31. And I, I want you to go over to Psalm 31 with me. Psalm 31 um, at verse 19. I'm going to read two verses. Psalm 31, 19 and 20. This is terrific, ladies and gentlemen. Just Psalm 31, 19 and 20. Listen to this. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked that goodness that He's worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Okay, here's the first thing that I want you to see. Do you notice that it says, I got all this stuff stored up for those who fear me, for those who take refuge in me. Gang, we take refuge in the one that we fear. You wouldn't normally think that, now would you? You would think, oh my goodness, if you fear him, you run from him. No. We find refuge in this God, the God that we fear. So the God that we fear is the God to whom we run when things are, when there's a strife of tongues after us. That is when people are talking bad about you. We take refuge in him. Um, you hide them from the plots of men. <clears throat> and from the strife of tongues. You know, guys, um, you know, we had three girls. And when we lived in Florida, um, there was a little girl that lived next door, and she was right in between my top two. So I forget their ages, but we'll just say five, four, three. And the five and the three-year-old, maybe it was six, five, four, something like that. But the, the four-year-old was my middle child, Megan. And then the next-door neighbor was Kelly. And then there was Gracie, my oldest. And Kelly had a pool. Um, and her backyard was my side yard. So every time the Benzics wanted to get in their pool, uh, there were the little young girls, you know. <laughs> and, and they were really close to Kelly. And, and I mean, I think we swam in that pool as much as, if not more than, than the Benzics who owned the pool. Um, but anyway, the three of them, we called them bathing beauties. And they would put their little bathing suits on and they would run around and get, jump in for three minutes and then go out and lay on a towel in the midst of our cove. It was really funny. But anyway, the one who was always getting the short end of the stick was, of course, the four-year-old. You know, the six-year-old and the five-year-old team up against the four-year-old. 
And um, I mean, it wasn't egregious, but I mean, it, it, she was always getting the short end of the stick. Um, and when she was, and you know, I was outside working in the yard. I, I, I do, I, I enjoy long work. Um, it's mindless and I can't break anything. Um, so I, I feel pretty good about myself, you know. Uh, but, but anyway, um, the, the three of them would be playing and Megan would be getting the short end of the stick and she would run across the yard and she would be crying and she would hide her head right here. She would tuck her head in between my legs because that was a place of refuge. It was a safe place for her. And then, of course, you know, big loud mouth, deep tone, daddy would scream at the other two and, and then it would be better. But, you know, an hour later back she was, you know, and head between my legs because it was a refuge. Ladies and gentlemen, God is our refuge. Go stick your head between his legs. But make sure first that this is the God that you fear. And this is the part that Piper added, which I just love. He said the fear of the Lord is the fear of straying. A fear of the terrible thought that I don't need him. Brother and sister, you want to know what God fears look like? They fear straying. Because to get off this path that is marked off by the law of God, we know is ruinous out there. We fear getting off that path with the notion that we don't need Him. God fears. Stay very close to the path. And in the midst of the plots of men and the strife of tongues, they run to the God that they fear. To find refuge. That's glorious. Our Father, would you show your people the great beauty of walking step by step in the fear of the Lord, like the church did? Might we find that our Life's intention, our life ambition, to never stray, to take very much care over our souls, to live with great integrity, to take the risks, to make the sacrifices, to live self in self-denial, to walk humbly. Might these things mark us off, O oh God, as people who fear the God we call our Father in heaven the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who sent the solution for our sin, the God that demanded righteousness from us and then provided it for us in Christ Jesus. What a gospel. What a God. We love you, Lord God. 
We're sorry we love you so little. Might you, by a fresh supply of grace, grant it that we might love you more. We pray in Jesus' name.